You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. As we get started, uh, I want to send you greetings from all around the churches of Canada. Uh, As I interact with many different churches, you need to know, and I like to remind this I like to bring this reminder to you whenever I come. There are many churches all across Canada who are encouraged by uh, Trinity Bible Chapel, and they are following, and uh, we are very thankful for the ministry of this church. So as partners in the gospel, we thank you for standing with your leadership and continuing to be a a culture, Christian culture-making church. Secondly, I would like to also just give a shameless plug uh, that we are hosting, Liberty Coalition Canada is hosting a live podcast event this coming Tuesday at 7 p.m. We are hosting it at Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington. Uh, We were going to host one here on Monday, tomorrow night, and then one there and decided to amalgamate the event. So we would really love it if you would be willing to join us for a live podcast. Uh, My co-host and partner in crime, uh, Pastor Tim Tyso, is here with us today. He and I are going to be discussing the matter of Islam and the Israeli conflict. So just a light topic for Tuesday night. But we'd like you to come. It is at, um, it's going to be at 7 o'clock. The door is open at 7 o'clock. It's $25 a person, and we will be raising money to... Uh, cover a number of the expenses for the court cases where we represent Christians across Canada. So we really love, love you to come. If, um, if you need to figure out how to do that, come and talk to me after the service. So with those two things being said, we are going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, and you can turn there now. And we are covering the subject matter of idolatry this morning. Uh, when uh, Jacob asked me to come and, and share... I said to him, I, I'm, I've been watching and following that you've been going through the Ten Commandments, and I'd, I'd really like to talk out of 1 Samuel chapter 5 as a reinforcement. And he said, okay, that's, that's fine. So we're going to talk today about idolatry, and I, I want to give you the heads up. This is a story that is meant to show you visually how silly and ridiculous idolatry is, and then at the same time to show you how dangerous it is. So this is a story, this is a narrative, we will be drawing conclusions from the text, and it's a joy to be able to grab these ideas and understand what's going on. So if you read this story, and there's times where you chuckle because of of the behavior of the people in the story, That's okay, because what God is doing is showing you and I both the seriousness and silliness of idolatry. The silliness as far as it's useless, the seriousness is that it is a real affront to Lord God for very specific reasons. So here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back on his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Now the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and in its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. 
So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of that city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors, so that they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God, of the God of Israel, around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all of the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to their own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Underline that. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make the models of the tumors and rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did? When he treated them harshly, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, take their calves away and pen them. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the, on the cart and the chest beside it, sorry, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this disaster on us. But if it does not, then we know that this is not his hand that has struck us, and this has all happened by chance. So they did this. The two took, they took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and among the chest containing gold rats and models of tumors. Then the cows went straight toward Beth Shemesh, keeping the road and lowing all of the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the field. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The ark came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all of this and then returned the same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a gold offering to the Lord, each of Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns being belonging to the five rulers, the four to five towns with the country villages. The large rock on which they set the ark is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kerith Jerim, 
saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. So the men of Kerith-Sherim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, that's the story. The story begins, it's, it, it, it's taken up at a moment in Israelite history. We've seen the book of Judges occur. The, the people of Israel are asking for a king. People are, of Israel are um, not following the Lord. They are uh, under the ministry of Eli and his corrupt sons. And just as this story starts, Eli and his sons are all killed. They're all, the sons are killed and Eli falls back and dies. And at the same time, the daughter-in-law of Eli declares upon the land that the land is Ichabod. The land is the glory of God has departed. And so we see a re-emphasis of that message right at the very beginning of this passage when the Philistines had realized that they had the ark and they wanted to declare their victory over the people. They took the ark from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Of course, that word Ebenezer is very important as we look in, throughout biblical history. Ebenezer was the name of this town, and the name of that town meant the Lord has helped thus far. And so the ark is being taken from the place that was called the Lord has helped thus far to some random pagan town Because the pagans have thought we have conquered the Israelites, and so we will take their uh, uh, we'll take their symbol, we'll we'll take um, some of their instruments, and we will place it before our God, and it will demonstrate to everybody that our God is more powerful than their God. So the people of Israel are living under the judgment of God themselves. And now we have this story about the Philistines and their god, Dagon. Just so you know, capturing religious artifacts is a very normal pagan process where you would capture an artifact and then you would declare your victory over it. So we saw this when the Danes took over England. We have seen this uh, even today in, in, uh, in Israel where the Dome of the Rock sits on the old, uh, in, the old outline of the temple. That is Islam saying Judaism is dead, Islam is a religion. This is a very common religious practice to do. And I wanted to tell you that just so that you are aware. Even though in this story God is going to show up miraculously because the ark was a very, significant, uh, a very significant piece of symbolism for the Israelites, God does not live in the temple. Like, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth does not live in a temple created by men. So there are times when artifacts are captured and put back, and, and the Lord does not intervene supernaturally. That doesn't mean anything. Here, though... He does intervene supernaturally. The Lord is about to defy their ideas about their God. So when the people of Ashdod, you, you know, they're, they're, they've captured the ark, they're very excited. Dagon, you know, we don't know how big this statue was. Let's just imagine that the statue's eight feet tall, okay? When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. So here's the picture, okay? We're all Dagon worshipers. Dagon's really cool. Dagon's this beautiful image in front. We come all the time to worship Dagon, except this time we showed up and Dagon is flat on his face in front of the ark of the Lord after the ark of the Lord has been placed in his presence. And every single person, down to the youngest child, can understand exactly what God is doing clearly as an illustration. What has God done? Somebody shout it out. 
louder. It's okay. Guys, every child can understand the symbolism of what God is doing. Dagon can't stand in the presence of the living God. So he's fallen on his face. But like good idolaters, the people quickly run down, they grab Dagon, and then they put him back on his place. Because we have to worship the thing that we have to set up with our own hands. And at this point, I would like to teach you two aspects of idolatry that are very important for you to understand as we navigate this world. The first aspect of idolatry is this. Idolatry is the mental and physical propping up of a man's imagination or creation. Idolatry is the mental and physical propping up of a man's imagination or creation. They literally had to take the statue and prop him back up in order to then bow down and worship Dagon. The other aspect that you need to understand is that this fashioning of an idol in our own hands is because we've accepted the premises of individuals. So Isaiah 2.8 says their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, what their own fingers have made. So you can do that by casting an actual little god. You can actually build up an actual idol to be a part of your idolatry. So all around the world, we can see little cats with waving arms. We can see big, fat, golden Buddhas. We can see jade statues. We, when we get into Hinduism, we can see the, uh, the Murtis, which are you know, uh, elephants with many arms, uh, voluptuous women with many arms. You can, see, you can actually see literal crafted statues where somebody has said, I think that this is how I want the God to look, so I will create an image of this God. The reason why this is so important is because you will come to understand as you look into this and as you live this out, that people fashion these statues that are in, their, in the images of their own impulses. So most of these fake gods obviously reflect a human, baser, lesser, primal, sin attribute that they want to pursue. So I, I, the sin of idolatry can be actually saying, I want... I want fertility for my family, so I will fashion a God that likes and looks for and makes me feel and other people feel sensual, and we will worship that so that everybody in the room turns around and wants to be fertile. You're inputting your impulses on the thing, and you can fashion it. And then the other type of idolatry is when we don't actually go and fashion it and say, this is your God. But in our heart, we accept men's word over and above God's word, and so that our actions reflect someone that we idolize or a word that we idolize that allows us to do the thing we want to do. This is a very important concept. Many people don't understand why it is so offensive to God that we might play around with other people's opinions and, and other people's words and, and what is all these little crafty things. It is simply because when we make an idol in our heart, we are accepting someone else's word over and above God in the name of science, in the name of social science, in the name of, of um, equity, in the name of diversity, in the, you put any name in there that, that all, the, all the, you know, the trendy words, 
It is simply someone saying, accept my ideas of the way things should be rather than God's ideas. So for example, like you've been in a room where someone will say, well, the majority of X say that pleasure comes from Y, therefore everyone should do Y. Or someone would say, well, 100% of people are saying, or the most, most of people are doing. So if education is your idol, then it's your school, right? Like, I go to Harvard. And if the Harvard business, school of business says, this is what you do, then you do it. And someone says, yeah, but that's like just robbery, what they're talking about, but it's Harvard. And somebody who has idolized education their whole life, their own vanity, their own pride in their own intellect, that's an idol for them. If it's money, well, the Bible says this is how you make money. This is how you spend money. This is how you should view money. This is money put in its place. But if money is your idol, you go, I don't really like God's way. I would rather follow this way to get money. And I would like to have this amount of money. I would like to spend it for myself and myself only. So do you understand the attachment between idolatry and your accepted authority? You give an idol authority. Ironically, it's usually the very thing that you want. So you're giving your greatest sinful desire authority to tell you it's okay to be sinful. That's how idolatry works. I always find it so fascinating in the church, and you probably don't have any people like this at your church, but I come across them quite a bit. The guy who has made an idol of self-righteousness, who kind of like, eh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but he like really thinks he's going to walk into eternity and Jesus is going to say, look, I died for everybody else, but you... I didn't really, like, you're, you're good. I'm telling you, every single time I meet that guy in my church, he's self-righteous about the thing that he's good at. And he completely ignores everything else. So, like, I'm self-righteous about this. Yeah, that's because you're, a, like, I'm, you're, you pray a lot. Yeah, that's because you don't know how to talk to people, so you stay at home. Like, he makes his own, they just make an idol of the thing that they want to do. And we can turn anything into an idol. And so this is really important because you accept someone else's word in place of God's word. Idolatry is the mental and physical acknowledgement of another authoritative word in place of God's word. Romans 1, and 23 says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made like mortal men. I want to be a strong man, so I'm going to make an idol that looks like a strong man. And birds and animals and reptiles. So, of course, we know the first commandment, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5.7, you shall have no other gods besides me. And that is a matter of the heart. We know that the second command, you shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything on heaven or on earth or, on, or beneath the, the earth or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commands. So the first lesson here about idolatry is that when you're engaged in it, you're actually creating it. So people constantly, this is called, this is called, um, this is called, uh, in Zoroastrianism, this is called mimicking magic, where you do what you want the thing to do so that you receive it. It's alive and well today. And so we have to be really careful not to replace anybody's words with the Lord's words. Exodus 32, 4 says, He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. These, not him. These, not Christ. 
John Calvin, who fought this battle of idolatry himself, many of you have heard this quote. He famously said, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. He went on to say, Man's mind, full of its own pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance of God. Those are really important words. It creates an unreality and an empty appearance of God. When someone creates an idol and said, go worship this, it's a non-reality. It doesn't exist. Martin Luther, who also talked about this, he said, the wicked say and admit, and he's talking actually of the Roman church at this time, says, I am a monk. And I serve God with vows and ceremonies. Because of this, he will give me eternal life. But who tells you that thus are worshiping the true God when he has not commanded these things? Therefore, you have made up for yourself some God who wants these things, although there is no true God who requires this. And who wants to give eternal life because of this? What you are worshiping is an idol of your own heart whom you think the righteousness of your own works pleases. The second part of idolatry that we can learn from this passage is that you create it, and no matter how many times you engage with it, you always have to prop it back up. It's a silly little act that we do, but Dagon's fallen on the ground. The ark of the Lord is standing there. Dagon's fallen on the ground, and the people run, and they prop it back up. We think that people who commit idolatry, so someone who is being idolatrous with wealth, I think many of us struggle with the secret belief of, that's ah, not going so bad for them. Or someone who has really fallen in to some type of sin, but they haven't yet paid for it. They, the, the brokenness hasn't fallen apart yet. Maybe, man, you're, you're looking at a guy who's left his wife and he's gone out and he's departed from his family. And he, right now he's in that party year. And maybe in your mind you go, this, this, maybe that's just not that bad. That's what we do. We tend to think that people will get away with idolatry. But when you do it, when you worship a false god, when you put someone else's word above God's word, you always have to pick it up. It always falls apart. Why? Because this is God's creation. An idol is nothing in God's creation. So sometimes God acts supernaturally, like in this story. But I'm telling you, God always acts naturally through his normative law that you can't get away with sin. So, number one about idolatry, idolatry is replacing someone's word and putting it above God's word. And the second thing is that it's always you propping up some human imaginative idea. But the following morning they rose, and there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor the others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Okay, so remember, the first illustration every child in the room got, right kids? You, you understood that here's Dagon, they're worshiping him, they put the ark there to illustrate that Dagon's more powerful than Yahweh, they wake up in the morning, and now Dagon's fallen on his face before the ark, and every one of us down to the last child understands that no God's greater than Yahweh. But they missed that last time, they went and they set Dagon back up, so this time God flops him down flat on his face, and just in case you missed it, Now he ripped off his head and broke his arms. Yeah, you get it? And what do they do? They scurry down. They take the body. They put the body back up. And then they take all the rubble and they sweep it all around the body. I don't know if they can even recraft it, whatever. And then they say, oh, this this place on the ground where the head fell, 
That's sacred. So just stay away from the broken head and arms. And how often do we do that when people are engaged in idolatry? All of a sudden, purple-haired Karen has more authority in my life because I'm dancing around her broken head and her ripped-off arms and her idols, and I'm scared of her rather than scared of the living God, and I'm missing the point. Her whole world is falling apart in front of her, and instead of engaging with her, I, I, sacred Karen, wise Jimmy, Oh, my son came home from university. He read a textbook. So who cares? God's word's good. But there was this philosopher. We do it all the time. Isn't it, isn't it unbelievable that the pagans missed the point? That, that's the whole, that's why this is such a visual. It's, it's absolutely silly. But it's absolutely dangerous. So the hands are off, so we use hands and arms to, to act. The head is off, we use the head for personal thought and general life. So Dagon is supposed to be understood as nothing, nothing personal, nothing powerful, nothing helpful, nothing, except Dagon is dead and it symbolizes that the thing I want and the reason why I'm worshiping him is also dead too. So if I, if I want fertility or if I want rain or if I want this and I'm doing these acts in front of this God or I'm listening to this smarty pants over here, this is not just showing that the God is dead. This is showing that the mindset and obedience to the word of that God is also dead. So, don't be intimidated by the protester with a Palestinian flag right now. Don't be intimidated by the girl who is just soaking in critical theory and is sensitive to any type of pushback. And parents, this is a very sincere point. Don't let your prodigal children lead you away from God. Andrew prayed this morning that those kids who are walking far from the Lord, who have, who have turned their back to God, that they would return, and it is a prayer that we all pray. But I will tell you that I have been shocked in my 47th year of life, in my 25th year of pastoring, that I am seeing more 40, 40 to 50 to 60-year-olds walk away from the faith or from the ethics and the morals and the commands of Scripture because of their rebellious kids than I would have ever imagined. Tim and I have talked about this on the podcast lots of time. There are Christian camps. There are Christian universities. There are Christian ministries that are walking away from the tenets of Scripture simply because the younger generation wants to be, have a license to do anything. And they are turning into evil, perverted, pagan, tribal people. Where like, where, like, the only sin is the sin against their tribe. And if you, the parent, try to guide them, you're getting a lot of pushback. Do not let a foolish, hard-hardened young adult lead you away from Christ. Even if they're birthing your grandchildren. Even if they're looking you in the eyes with a big, you know, I shot my first deer two weeks, away, two weeks ago. Man, did she look right, she looked me right in the eyes. That's what you do with your kid, right? Right in the, right in the heart with the gospel, with the authority of King Jesus. It's a big deal, this whole tiptoeing 
Okay, so for those of you who are listening, you'll realize that I read almost two full chapters of Scripture, and we've gone through five verses. So don't worry, we are now going to conclude the next two chapters. So if we go and we follow the story, the next number of verses is all about this story, about how the pagans deal with the presence of God. So they haven't picked up that they should repent and worship the only true God, but they know something is wrong. And they say things like this. Uh, Number one, the, the phrase God's hand was heavy upon them, is repeated multiple times in the passage. It's repeated both by the the narrator and it is repeated by the people who are professing it, saying God's hand is heavy upon us. So God's hand is heavy upon upon them. They're seeing it. And they're seeing it so much that the outcry of the city went up to heaven. This is a phrase we have not seen since the Israelites in Egypt when they were suffering under the oppression of slavery, and their cry went up to heaven. And this is almost a parallel sentence so that we would understand the Lord is truly dealing with them. Like, like this is not not light stuff. God is knowingly putting his hand upon them of judgment that they might turn and repent. But here you have to understand, again, when we're in Hebrew narrative, you have to understand the details, the historical context of what's going on. When they say, what guilt offering should we send him? If you've ever read your Bible, you go, well, how would a pagan know about a guilt offering? Like, what's, How do they even get the whole concept of guilt offering? And so what you have to understand is that they bring these priests in, they bring these diviners in, And they get really bad advice, but they get bad advice in the context of the fact that they knew the story of Egypt. They say it. Don't harden your heart. Look at Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. Look at what what their God did to him. And then they say things, well, what type of guilt offering should we send him? So they understood the narrative of the Torah. They understood some of the theology And maybe they didn't understand all of the rituals, but where could they go to find out if they were truly repentant? They're trying to get the the ark back to the Israelites. They could go to the Israelites. What should we do to appease your God? What, What should we do? But they don't. In fact, their way of handling it is don't make a sacrifice. Um, Fashion gold mini idols out of unclean animals like rats and tumors. Not one of you even flinched at rats and tumors. Like, I'm surprised by that. It's kind of gross. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's appease him by taking rats, dipping them in gold. That's going to be a cool thing. And then, hey, do you remember that guy who died the other day? And we cut him up in the middle, and we realized a big infestated growth in him. Let's make a bunch of those ones into gold. That's a beautiful image. Now, this is what I'm talking about, imitation magic. They're actually believing that if they make the rats into gold, they make the tumors into gold and give them away to the Israelites, the Israelite God, it will actually take the physical rats and the physical tumors away. Imitation magic, Zoroastrianism, it's all over the place. But they're unclean animals. And then finally, they decide to give the ark back in some mystical, well, if he goes to the left, we know it's, you know, We know from God. If he goes to the right, we knew it was all by chance. And again, you got to think that through. All by chance. Yeah. You put the ark in front of your God. Your God is face flat one day. It's the same the next day. The next day, your, your God is completely destroyed. You didn't get the message. So the next day and the weeks to follow, you all have tumors, which nobody ever had. And you have a problem with rats, which you never had in the past but you're willing to say, oh, it might be all chance. Now, here is a really important point, and you're going to actually see it in God's judgment against the Israelites, too. They wanted the blessing of God going easy on them, but they didn't want God. 
They just wanted his presence out of there. They, want, they wanted it. They're, they're recognizing we have to appease him. But they're, they're not wanting to leave their paganism, their pagan practices, which are so seductive. They just want God to bless them, but also to depart from them. And is that not something that you and I do on a regular basis at times? God, I want your blessing. Like we were with a bunch of missionaries this last week. Sarah and I were talking about this yesterday as she was driving home from Texas and I was flying here. And I was like, we did not pray enough with them. And I thought about it, like, why didn't I want to pray with my good old friend, missionary friends? It's like, I don't know, I didn't want to think about the heaviness of church. And I didn't want to have to think about the three conferences that are coming up that I have to go to. And I didn't want to, thi- I didn't want to think about anything. I just wanted to relax and, and be with my friends. I just want the general blessing of God. But I'm not sure if I want his presence all the time. Like, the, I, I've, I've, I, just in re-going over this sermon this morning, it's been on my heart, man alive, sometimes we do this. And the Israelites do the exact same thing. So now we see in the next part of the story that the Israelites get the ark back. They chop up the cart. They, put, they make a sacrifice. So they, they get one thing right. They, they make a sacrifice to atone for sin. They get one thing right. But then you see all of the disrespect and the syncretism of the Israelites, the syncretism that they have now accepted from the pagans nearby. They put the ark and the golden rats and tumors beside the ark up on a rock to display. When was the last time we saw the Israelites put something golden on display? Golden calf. Where did they put them? They put them beside each other. Who were the people who put the ark beside Dagon? Oh, those were pagan. Those were pagans. How in the world would the Lord's people take the Ark of the Covenant, first of all, the Ark of the Covenant, which they've known should always be in the most holy of holies. Like, there should be something erected to hide it, to protect its holiness, to recognize the presence of God. And then number two, you put that beside a bunch of pagan idols that are made of gross tumors. Okay, I'm really having fun with the tumor thing. So like, maybe they actually took some of their cut out tumors. And made it. And you put that beside the ark? No, when Moses came across the people committing idolatry, what did they do with the, with the golden image? Smashed it. Put it into powder. Made the people drink it. You don't put idols beside the ark of God. And then God had to kill 70 guys. Because one of the guys, probably the youth pastor in the young adults ministry... <laughs> said, hey, maybe, maybe we should look into the ark. That might be a cool thing. Yeah, I know. I, it's the young guys. I know. I, look, at, I would have been that guy. So you see here, the story goes on, and you're going, well, what is, like, I thought the whole idea was that the ark's supposed to return, and what is happening? It is the ongoing story. What do the Israelites do? Instead of saying, we have to change, they say, get the ark out of here. And they send it away. And that's how the story ends. One town to another town, because the people don't want the heavy hand of God upon them, but they're not truly turning to the living God and his way to be reconciled so that they might not have the hand of God upon them, but at the same time enjoy and, de- uh, enjoy and then delight in his presence, which leads them to life. Matthew Henry writes, in times of public calamity... We fear for ourselves, we fear for our families, and we fear for our country, but who cares for the ark of God? We are favored with the gospel, but it is treated with neglect or contempt. We need not offer it, should be taken from us, 
And many people do this. So, that is the situation. Sinners, at length, will go out of their way to get out of misery, but refuse to part with their sins so they can't have both. They can't be out of idolatry and have God's hand off them, and they struggle to do that. And they move from one idol to another idol to another idol to another idol, trying to find something out of an alt-world that doesn't exist. What is the solution? The solution, as always, is a beautiful remedy where we can have, be in the presence of God through repentance and the forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ instead of mixing with the pagans, facing the consequences that they face, and trying to get God to move away from us. Let me read for you the solution. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made and built by hands. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as like some gold or silver or stone image, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set the day when he will judge the world by justice, by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising his man, him, Christ, from the dead. I have two points to conclude for you from that passage. Number one, if you are new to this church congregation because you have walked off the street or walked out of another temple or walked out of a, an academic secular setting and you've come in here for the first time and you are wondering, how do I reconcile with God because I feel his heavy hand upon my life in the decisions that I'm making? There is one answer. Reach out to him he will let you find him. He is not far off. And he has made the way because of Jesus, the man he has appointed to judge the living and the dead. And if you trust in that man, he will declare you innocent on the day of judgment. That is the gospel. That is the truth that you, if you're brand new here, and you don't understand anything else, you need to accept that truth. God created the world, and he is here to be found. You have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was risen from the dead. And church, the second part of application is, what do we do, and how do we take that message? And my exhortation to you this morning from Scripture is, this is Paul sitting in the midst of a bunch of pagan idol worshipers. Literally, John's the idol maker down the road who like makes idols and sells them. I know you're not, but. 
We are now living in the new paganism. There are world religions and false religions coming at us from everywhere. Secularism, which is a religion in and of itself, is pervasive in our culture. They're literally creating an entire alt world. And they think it's a real world. Do not reason with them to start. You call them to faith in the Lord of the universe. You call them to faith in his man. Then you can reason with them. We take the gospel to rebellious, idolatrous people. We do not take the gospel to people who are victims and have no guilt. And we can take the gospel as those who have been forgiven. So when you come face to face with blue-haired Karen or Muslim Muhammad or any other Sikh name or any other religion if you, or apostate Andrew from the church, you are bringing them the simple message of God who created Jesus, King of Kings, repent and you will find him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the ability to draw near to you. God, you know that our hearts are so easily swayed into making idols. Please forgive us when we do this. And our hearts are so easily swayed to be influenced by the paganism all around us. The lights and the scents and the sensuality, all of those things are just so tempting to us. God, forgive us for being, when we, when we synchronize the faith, when we think, synchronize your truth with, with, with falsehood, Lord, we do pray that many in Canada would turn, that many in Canada would be found by you as we go out and tell them to find you and they choose to do so. They, they, they pursue you, they repent. We do ask for a great working of your Holy Spirit so that this might happen and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.